We are continuing this morning in our series through the five solas. We're 80% through today, if my math is correct, which uh, every now and then it is. So we're on number four today. Number four. Uh, now, if you've missed any of the past Sundays, uh, let's recap where we've been so far. Right? We've looked at first sola scriptura, uh, that scripture alone is our ultimate authority for matters of faith and practice rather than the added tradition of the Roman Catholic Church, right? And we, we've been going through this series kind of comparing and contrasting to understand what makes the Protestant Reformation Protestant, right? We look next at sola gratia, that we're saved by God's grace alone as a gift, that God brings salvation to us. We don't go to Him to get it, right? We don't go through sacraments to be saved. And last Sunday, Pastor Luke from Carson Valley Bible Church was uh, kind to come and uh, fill the pulpit here and preach on sola fide, that we are justified and made right with God by faith alone, through faith alone, that, that we receive the righteousness of Jesus through faith rather than trying to build our own righteousness through our works. And this morning we come to number four, solus Christus, which means that we are saved through the work of Christ alone. We're saved through the work of Christ alone. Alone. Martin Luther, the, the spearhead of the Reformation, proclaimed that the cross is our theology. The cross is our theology. And, and he did not mean by that that all we care about is the cross, that we neglect the resurrection, that we neglect the ascension, that we, we ignore these other matters of Christian doctrine. No, what he meant was that the person and work of Jesus Christ is the center of Christian theology and worship. In comparison, of course, to the additions of, of Rome, sacraments, Mary, praying to saints. But ultimately, what we'll see today is that God has given us an all-sufficient mediator, intercessor, and way to God in Christ and in Him alone. Let's pray as we come to God's Word. Our God and our King, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that it is our authority because it is from you and you are the authority over all things lord is the creator is the true and living god lord we thank you that your word tells us that we are saved not by our own works but by grace alone through faith alone in christ alone and so lord this morning as we come to your word would you exalt your son jesus christ before us May we see that He alone is the Redeemer that you have provided, and that none other could even be desired. Lord, we thank you that you have given us such a perfect object of our faith in your Son. And we pray, Lord, this morning that you would help us to turn to Him all the more. And that, Lord, if there are ways that we are seeking salvation in other things besides Christ, without even realizing it, Lord, would you draw us to your Son? And would you magnify Him today? We ask this in His name. Amen. Amen. We're going to look at three aspects of Christ's work this morning. And, and really, they kind of all flow out of this first one that we're going to start with. Christ is the only mediator. Christ is the only mediator. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. 
Paul is writing to Timothy here. Uh, Timothy was his, his younger associate, and uh, he's telling Timothy, pray for all people. Pray for all people. And in the midst of this instruction on prayer, Paul tells Timothy something uh, that is a, a bedrock truth for us. This is a fact statement. Verse 5, he writes, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. And if we read down, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. Our understanding of, of solus Christus, of Christ alone, really hinges on his work as mediator. And Paul tells us here that there is only one mediator between God and man, and that is Christ. But what is a mediator? What is a mediator? Uh, my children might tell you a mediator is a meat eater, like a dinosaur, that's where they may go. But really, a mediator is someone who goes between two parties who are at odds and reconciles them, bringing them back together. For example, in a workplace, in today's world, you may have two employees who find themselves in conflict. Should the window be open? Should the window be closed? Well, a conflict mediator might be brought in to resolve that situation. In a similar but not identical way, Christ acts as a mediator to reconcile sinful men to a holy God. And he is uniquely qualified to do this because of who he himself is. You see, Christ is not just a regular person like you, like uh, like me. No, Christ has two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. He is fully God and fully man. And because of that, he is able to represent the interests of God and man perfectly. Because of his divine nature, he is sinlessly able to endure and overcome that which you and I could not. Because of his human nature, he is able to represent us as a substitute. He is perfectly qualified to mediate between God and man as the God-man himself. But realize something that, that this verse is pointing out to us, something that's fairly foundational. It's telling us we need a mediator. It's telling us we need a mediator. A lot of people today, and maybe this is you, maybe you're here and this is what, what you think today. A lot of people today think that you can stand before God on your own on Judgment Day. They'll be okay, right? God knows I tried my best. I, I really tried to live a good life and do good things. Um, God will let me into heaven uh, based on that, right? He knows I gave it my best, my best shot. I was a pretty good person. There's a lot of things I didn't do, right, that are pretty bad. I, I didn't do those bad things. But the Bible teaches something completely different. Uh, sure, if we stand before God without a mediator... We will be judged by our works. That, that's true. But that's not a good thing. That's not a good thing. Paul writes in Romans 2 that God will render to each one according to their works. For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey in righteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, which is every human being. So if you're going to stand before God without a mediator, without somebody going in between you and him, you're toast. You're smoked. It will not go well for you because maybe we have a couple paltry little good deeds that, that even those, uh, those little good deeds are corrupted and polluted by our sinful motives for doing them. And then we look at the rest of our lives. We start with the Ten Commandments. We start with the very first one. You shall have no other God besides me. Well, if you are not worshiping the one true God, you haven't even gotten past the first commandment. 
We haven't even gotten to the more difficult one, so to speak. So if you're going to stand before God without a mediator, just you and God, you're in trouble. You need someone to resolve the conflict between you and Him. But it's important to note, we need to add one more detail here. There is something important we need to remember when we talk about Christ's work as a mediator. Okay? Uh, unlike a workplace conflict where two sinners are involved, our conflict with God is, is one-sided. Uh, what I mean by that is that God does not need to be reconciled to us. We need to be reconciled to Him. We have sinned against Him. Uh, Peter writes in Peter 3.18, 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. We are the ones who are estranged. We are the ones who are far off. We are the ones who are separated because of our sin. And so Christ, as the mediator between God and man, brings sinful man back to God. And only He can do that. Right? We, we, we look at the gospel. We look at how... Uh, Christ lived that perfect life that we can't live. We look at how he went to the cross to die the death that we deserve to die and bear the punishment we deserve to die. And he does that perfectly, rising again on the third day, able to give us and apply that forgiveness that we cannot earn for ourselves and present us to God and say, I've cleansed them. They are forgiven. My blood covers them. To act as a mediator between God and man. That's foundational to who uh, we are as Christians, our understanding of the gospel, and more specifically, to who we are as Protestants. Because there's a question that, that can be asked, is Christ the only mediator? Is Christ the only one that can go between God and man? That's an important question because it's one that Catholics and Protestants differ on. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church answers yes and no to this question. Um, and perhaps one of the clearest areas of the difference between Protestants and Catholics on this question can be seen in relation to the Virgin Mary. Right? As Protestants, uh, we value Mary. We honor Mary. Right? We see her obedience, her faith, her humility to God. I mean, really, Mary is an amazing woman. And she is uniquely blessed by participating in God's redemptive plan, being the mother of the Savior, giving birth to the incarnate Christ. That, that's a special thing. But Catholicism takes things further than that. Right? The Reformation was 500 years ago, but even as recently as the 1960s, the Catholic Church and the Second Vatican Council reaffirmed the Catholic view of Mary as mediatrix, the female form of the word mediator. Uh, now again, we don't want to misrepresent anybody ever, right? So uh, just to be clear, the Catholic Church does acknowledge Christ's mediation is unique, but that Mary's mediation is also necessary. The Catholic view essentially comes down to this. Mary is the human being closest to God as the mother of Christ, and so she has the greatest merit of any creature, and God has chosen to bestow grace on people through Mary. Through Mary. Uh, so she is, in other words, a secondary mediator and essentially stands between us and Christ. Right? A mediator for the mediator. And again, this has been the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church for, for centuries. I'll take, for example, the prayer of a well-known Catholic theologian. Again, I don't want to misrepresent anybody, so just uh, from the horse's mouth, right? O mother of fair love, my advocate and refuge, Mary, who art of all creatures the most beautiful, the most loving, the most beloved of God, and whose desire it is to see him loved, by the love dearest to Jesus Christ, pray for me 
and obtain for me the grace to love him always and with my heart. Mary is seen as the one through whom Christ dispenses grace, a mediatrix for the mediator, us, Mary, Christ, God. But the Bible knows nothing of this doctrine. As we look at this, this one verse here, 1 Timothy 2.5, Paul is absolutely clear and unqualified. Um, there is one mediator between God and man. There is one, and that's it. One mediator between sinful human beings and a holy God. And he tells us who it is. We don't have to guess. The man Jesus Christ. And this is actually a beautiful reality. This is a beautiful doctrine for us. God's provided us all we need in Christ. There is no other mediator necessary than Christ. And his work as mediator is once and for all completed. It's completed. He stands forever as our mediator. In the Catholic view, Mary's mediation is ongoing, continually going to her to get more grace and more grace and more grace. But biblically, we are told we've received the fullness of God's grace through the finished work of Christ as our mediator. That's why the author of Hebrews proclaims three times in that letter that Christ's sacrifice for sin and the grace that comes through it, through his mediating work, is once for all. Once for all. Finished. Done. There is no other mediator needed besides Jesus Christ for sinners. And there could be no other qualified mediator. Who else is both God and man? Who, both, or who, who can reconcile both God and men? But Christ alone as our mediator. And Christ is not only our mediator, but out of that flows his work as our priestly intercessor. Our second point, Christ is our only intercessor. Let's read Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. And we'll go ahead and start in verse 23 and read down to verse 25. The author of the Hebrews is uh, comparing and contrasting the Old Testament priests and Christ. And here's what he says. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. And here's the result. Here's what that means. Consequently, he, meaning Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. What an amazing verse. Amen. What an amazing verse. Now that word intercession to modern ears may sound a little antiquated, a little outdated, so let's define it for a moment. Intercession is really the act of intervening on behalf of another. In this context, it's, it's praying for another person. Hebrews 9.24 tells us that Christ stands in heaven to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Christ prays for his people to the Father in a priestly way, in a priestly way. And this is part of his work as mediator, but Christ does not just mediate for us in redemption, but he also mediates for us in his intercession through his prayers for us. Throughout the entire book of Hebrews, Christ is revealed to be the fulfillment of the Old Testament priestly system. 
right? The priests in the Old Testament would offer sacrifices. That's what they're best known for doing, probably. And they were chosen specifically for this purpose. And there is something mediatory about that. And this is fulfilled with Christ's sacrifice on the cross. But offering sacrifices was not the only thing that the priests did. They would also intercede on behalf of God's people through prayer to Him directly. We see on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, the high priest would not only kill an animal as a sacrifice, but he would also confess the sins of the people before God and place them on a goat that would be released into the wilderness, praying to the Lord in confession of sin on behalf of the nation. Another example is 2 Chronicles 30, 27, which describes how the priests prayed for the people. Now, the priests and the Levites rose up and blessed the people, and their voice was heard, and their prayer came to his holy habitation in heaven, the verse says. So in addition to sacrifices, the priests would pray for the people. And there's many other examples, Moses, Abraham, interceding throughout the Old Testament on behalf of others. Well, Hebrews 7.25 tells us that Christ is continuously, constantly, eternally interceding for us before the Father as our ultimate and perfect priest. He is our only priestly intercessor. The Apostle John touches on this in 1 John 2, 1. He says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have one who is in the Father's presence on our behalf for our good. Is really what that means. But we want to be careful, right? Because sometimes when people think about Jesus interceding for us, uh, we get this idea that God the Father is kind of mad and he's kind of cold, and he's a little cantankerous, and he's got a temper. And he needs to be reminded by Jesus that we've been forgiven, right? So Jesus stands in heaven trying to calm down the Father. Like, don't send the lightning bolts, remember the cross. Don't send the lightning bolts, remember the cross. That's kind of the picture that people get sometimes. Uh, maybe that's how you've thought about it. Um, but nothing can be further from the truth, right? We have to remember something. Who is the one that planned redemption? The Father. Who is the one that chose to send his only son out of love for sinners? The Father. And of course, the Son willingly comes and dies. So, so Christ's intercession is not one of convincing the Father to exercise his goodwill towards us or to forgive us. The Father doesn't need convincing. No, Christ stands in the Father's presence as a testimony of the eternal forgiveness that's been purchased for us, to be sure. But as he prays for us, for his church, he is actually appealing to the goodwill of the Father. And we see this no clear uh, of a place than in John 17. Turn there briefly with me for a moment. John 17. John 17 is often called the high priestly prayer. You might even have that little heading in your, your Bible over the chapter, the high priestly prayer. And it's called this for good reason. In this prayer, we, we, we have an intimate glimpse into Jesus' intercession on behalf of his people to his Father. John chapter 17 is where we will be. And we're just going to skim the passage. We won't have time to read through it this morning, but just to highlight a couple things in the text. This is Jesus' prayer on behalf of his, his people. And so if we want to wonder what kind of things does Jesus pray for in heaven, John 17 gives us a pretty good idea of the things that Jesus is asking of the Father. And as we skim this chapter, we see first, of course, in the first uh, section, the first five verses, Jesus asks the Father to glorify Him 
But as he goes on, he begins to pray for us. Verse 9, we see he's praying for his people specifically, not for the world at large, but for those whom the Father has given him, because they belong to the Father. As he goes on, he prays that we would be one, that his people would have unity in the gospel as he has oneness with the Father. As we go down to verse 13, Jesus prays that we, his people, would have his joy fulfilled in us, that we would share in his joy. He asks in verse 15 that the Father would keep his people from the evil one. In verse 17, he prays that the Father would sanctify us in the truth of his word. In verse 20, we see he's not just praying for his immediate apostles, but for those who will believe through the word. That's us. That's us right there in verse 20. And again, praying that we would be one and that we would be a witness to the world, he prays. As he goes on to verse 24, Jesus prays that we would be with him where he is going, that the Father would bring us safely into his dwelling place. In verse 26, Jesus prays that the love that the Father has loved him with would continue in us. Those are good things to pray for, are they not? This gives us a window into what Jesus as our high priest is asking of the Father. And and, and really, the picture we see is not that Christ makes intercession because the Father is reluctant to bless us. No, no, the opposite. Because the Father is so eager to give the Son whatever He asks, And because the Father is so eager to bless those He's given to Christ, Christ goes freely and asks of the Father amazing and wonderful things for us because He knows the Father is ready to grant those requests at the drop of a hat. And the Father and the Son, of course, they share the same will. They share the same will. They're not divided in their will. So it's really a beautiful picture of the Son requesting of the Father that which is the will of God and the Father gladly granting the requests of the Son out of love for Him and for those who are in Him. Really a wonderful thing to know that our Savior is praying for us even now. He's praying for each one of you, asking for the Father to do these kinds of things for you in your life. God answers our prayers. But man, God answers Jesus' prayers. But it's at this point, too, right, that the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church differs. The Roman Church acknowledges Christ is the only mediator of redemption, but they would say, well, he's not the only mediator of intercession. Right? In Catholic teaching, there are those who have received the special status of sainthood, as well as the Virgin Mary, right, who, who serve as those who also intercede for we who are here on earth. And and this is seen in the Catholic practice, not just of honoring the saints, but praying to them, right? Praying to them, asking for their help. Uh, Again, since the the view is they're closer to God than we are, and their prayers are more effective than ours. And it's true, while while we're on this earth, we may ask others to pray for us, right? I may go, hey, Curtis, can you pray for me? We do that. We ask others to intercede for us in prayer, but this is very different than praying to other people. I said, Curtis praying to you, please pray for me. That, that would be odd, right? That wouldn't be right. Uh, Mary and the saints are still only human at the end of the day. They don't have God's attributes. They're not omnipotent. They're not omniscient. They cannot hear or know or 
see all things. They cannot answer the thousands and thousands of prayers that may be offered at one time. Only God has those qualities. And that's why in Scripture we're never told to pray to anyone but God. No saints, no people, nobody. Just to God. And, and here, too, we see why sola scriptura, to connect some dots, is so important. Right? When asked where this doctrine comes from or the explanation for it, one Catholic theologian says, how do we know the saints hear us? For the Catholic, the answer can almost be deceptively simple. We know because the church tells us so. Uh, perhaps, but does the Bible? Does the Bible? Because what the Reformers saw, what, what Christians throughout the ages have seen, what, what I see in Scripture, is that we have direct access in our prayer through Christ alone. He is our intercessor. We have access through Him. If you turn to Ephesians briefly, just Ephesians uh, chapter 2 and chapter 3, just two verses there that uh, really reveal this clearly. Ephesians 2.18. We see what the Apostle Paul writes here. Ephesians 2.18. Paul is writing here about how God in Christ has brought together Jew and Gentile to be one new man. One new man. And there is a, a resulting effect of this that he describes for us in verse 18. Now we'll start in verse 17 just to get a little more context. <clears throat> Speaking of Christ, Paul writes, And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, the Gentiles, peace to those who were near, those would be the Jews. For through him, meaning Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. If we look over just a couple paragraphs to Ephesians 3.12, Paul writes that it is in Christ in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him through our faith in him the picture that's painted here is that believers through faith have direct access to the father to the throne room of heaven there is no need for anyone else it is as if we are standing there in heaven itself as we pray to Christ we have that access and, and Paul tells us don't be timid you don't need to be cautious about it. What are the words he uses that we also see in Hebrews? Boldness, confidence. Brothers and sisters, do not wonder or worry if your prayers are, are a little out of radio reception. No, it is as if you were in the throne room of God bringing your requests, yet they are purified and made pleasing to him in every way through Christ. According to Scripture, we can go directly to the Father in prayer because of Christ, our intercessor and mediator. Scripture tells us that Christ is sufficient. He is sufficient. He is all we need. What else does Jesus mean when he tells us to pray in his name? In John 14, 13 through 14. There's no other intercessor in heaven for us but Christ. There's no other name we are to pray in. There is no other one we are to pray to. There's no room for Mary or the saints in prayer. It's, it's between the believer and the triune God. And, and it's, it's tragic to think for a moment about all the wasted prayers offered to Mary and the saints. They do not hear us. They do not bring our prayers to God. That, that's like if I were to go pray to this wall, practically speaking, right? It's fruitless. It's ineffective. God never directs us to pray that way, but to him alone through Christ in the Spirit. It is a triune work. Christ is the intercessor. And just think for a moment how amazing this is. 
We have the risen Son of God who not only intercedes for us constantly, but brings our own requests to His Father. That the Son is always constantly seeking our good before the willing face of our Father in heaven. And that as a high priest, He even purifies our feeble prayers, making them pleasing incense to God. There's no need for an intercessor but Him. What more could we add to what we've been given in Christ? What more could we add to the riches that are in Him? That's why we're told to go boldly with confidence because we have all we need in Him. God is so generous to us by giving us His Son. And not only is Christ the one through whom our requests are brought into heaven, it is through Christ alone that we ourselves are brought to heaven. We are brought to the Father. John 14, 16. Christ is the only way to the Father. Christ is the only way to the Father. Turn to John 14, 16. Some of you may have this verse memorized, of course, but John 14, 16. Some of you may even have this verse as your Wi-Fi password. Who knows? I'm not revealing who that is. John 14, 16. I'm sorry, 6. 6. If you had 16 memorized, that'd be impressive. Verse 6, I'm sorry, verse 6 of chapter 14 in John's Gospel. Verse 6. Uh, Thomas is there. The disciples are there. Jesus is telling them he's going to go away, speaking of the ascension. And Thomas says, well, how, how do we know where you're going? How do we know the way? And Jesus' response to him is this in verse 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. As, we go, as we've been going through the five solas, we've seen again and again and again that so much of what these solas deal with is the question of how a person is saved, really about the nature of man's relationship with God. And that's true for this sola, solus Christus. Christ is our only mediator. Right? We've seen that already. And uh, the the one of the vital aspects of that biblical claim is that it is only through Christ that man gets to God. It's only through Christ that we come to the Father. It is only through Christ that we are saved and brought to heaven. And Jesus just made this claim about himself, right? I am the way, not a way, not one of many. I am the truth, not one of a couple different options. I am the life. There's no other source but me. No one Without exception, no one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, it is impossible to have a saving relationship with God apart and through Christ alone. That is a controversial statement today, and in some ways it has been for many years. But when we say solus Christus, we are saying Christ is the only way to salvation. All religions do not lead to God. It is through Christ alone that we come to the Father. All right, this is why Jesus elsewhere compares himself to a door or even a narrow gate. There's one entrance into the Father's presence and it is through the Son. You do not have a saving relationship with God. You have a condemning relationship with God if it is any way apart from through Christ. That's the reality that Scripture presents to us. And that's why the apostles proclaimed a message that salvation comes through Christ alone. Acts 
the Apostle Peter says there's salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Or Acts 10.43, to him, to Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. It doesn't get more specific than that. Believing in God does not save you. It does not save you. Believing in God does not make you right with him. It is only through Christ and the salvation that is in him that we get to God. It's only through Christ that sinful people are made right with a holy God. And yet here, too, there's a difference between the Catholic and Protestant view. In the Catholic view, there are other factors in the process of salvation. Now, the Roman Church teaches there's no salvation apart from the church. And think about it for a second, right? If salvation comes through partaking in the sacraments, and the Roman Church is where the sacraments are found, then the church essentially becomes a necessary actor for salvation. Or take, again, the, the Roman view of Mary, right? If Mary dispenses grace to people, then she becomes a necessary actor for salvation beyond giving birth to the Savior. In fact, this has led the Roman church to, to actually teach and require devotion to Mary. And, and they would say it's not worship in the same way as we worship God. Um, but there's some fairly troubling statements, such as one prominent Catholic theologian uh, who, who's one of the experts on devotion to Mary. He says, I hope the reader is fully persuaded that in order to ensure eternal salvation, it is most important to be devout to the Most Holy Mary. That's very troubling. That's very troubling. Because that is not Christ alone. That's a denial of John 14, 16. There is no mediator in between us and the mediator. And when we read scripture, we see a different picture entirely. The prophets, Jesus, the apostles are completely silent about any other Savior than Christ. There's no other player in the game but Christ. There's no mention that salvation comes through Mary or through the sacraments or through prayers to the, nothing. Right? The epistles don't even mention Mary, but they talk a lot about Christ. In fact, that's all they talk about. It's Christ, 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 Christ. Paul says, I, uh, I knew nothing among you but Christ crucified. Christ is the Savior, the only Savior, the only player. We see that Christ alone brings us to the Father, that, that while participation in Christ's church is a natural and obedient response of His people, the church doesn't bring the salvation. The church is the result of salvation that is in Christ alone. And so once again, as we look at Solus Christus, that Christ is the only mediator, the only intercessor, the only way to the Father, when we take a step back, we see how all the solas flow into each other that we must rely on Scripture alone as our authority to discover, to learn how one can be saved. It's through Scripture we, we see that, that our salvation is a gift of God's grace that comes to us through faith in Christ alone. Made possible by the work of Christ alone. And of course, the, the chief end, the purpose of our salvation, we will look at next week, Soli Deo Gloria, for God's glory alone. But Christ alone, friends, must be the object of our faith. If you're trusting in any one but Him, if you're trusting in yourself, if you're trusting in your good works, if you're trusting in Mary, if you're trusting in the sacraments, if you're trusting in anything but Christ, you do not have salvation. It is in Christ alone. The Bible calls us to trust Him, to rest in Him. There is no room, there's no need for any other 
Savior, but Christ. And it's not that God has given us the bare minimum Savior, right? The economy model. No, He has given us, I, I, I can't even fathom it, right? Paul tells us that uh, the, the, the richness of the treasures of knowledge and wisdom that are in Christ. We read this morning of how in Christ we've, we've received sanctification and wisdom and righteousness and justification. How in Christ we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God has not given us a bare-bones Savior. He has given us one that is abundantly sufficient beyond what we can ask or think or even desire. You and I could not even dream up a Savior like Jesus. The French reformer John Calvin exhorts us to seek none but Christ since we need none but Christ. Here's what he says. We see that our whole salvation and all its parts are comprehended in Christ. We should therefore take care not to derive the least portion of it from anywhere else. If we seek salvation, we are taught by the very name of Jesus that it is of him. That's what his name means, right? If we seek redemption, it lies in his passion. If acquittal in his condemnation, if remission of the curse in his cross, if satisfaction in his sacrifice, if purification in his blood, if reconciliation in his descent into hell, if mortification of the flesh in his tomb, if newness of life in his resurrection, if inheritance of the heavenly kingdom in his entrance into heaven, if protection, if security, if abundant supply of all blessings in his kingdom, if untroubled expectation of judgment in the power given to him to judge. In short, since rich store of every kind of good abounds in him, let us drink our fill from this fountain and from no other. Solus Christus, Christ alone. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, our rock and our redeemer, we thank you for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for giving us an all-sufficient redeemer, a perfect object of our faith that we might look upon him and rest in what he has done for us, receiving the gift of his righteousness through faith. Lord, I pray if there are any here this morning who are trusting in anyone but Christ, that you would turn them to him, that they would not rest in their performance, but that they would rest in Christ, that they would not rest in other saints or people or acts, but that they would trust and rest in Christ. As Lord, you have set before us a rich table in our Savior. Why would we settle for crumbs anywhere else? So, Lord, may we indeed drink deeply from the goodness of Jesus, our Savior. And we pray that we would rest in him alone. We ask this in his name. Amen.